Welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Ed Stevens, and usually my co-host Oliver Jones. We're hoping lockdown lifting will finally reunite us so we can get back to programming as usual. This episode is with British polar explorer Ben Saunders. His claim to fame? His journeyed solo to both the North and the South Pole, completed the longest polar journey on foot, and has spent two decades leading polar explorations. It was an unorthodox route that led him to these monumental milestones, but the man's accomplishments are matched only by his modesty. Not our typical entrepreneur episode, but this is a spellbinding story of adventure, facing our biggest challenges, and confronting ourselves in the process. I was left at the end of it with some of the magic and menace of two of the most mysterious places on Earth. So without further ado, we bring you Ben Saunders. Greetings. I am joined by Ben Saunders. Thanks for joining, Ben. Pleasure. Great to, well, obviously not, I suppose, great to be here. Great to be here online. <laughs> um, I didn't, I, I was going to give you an introduction and I actually, after reading all of your background, didn't want to try and put a label on you. So how do you describe yourself <laughs> to people? Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah. Somebody asked me the other day, like, what, like, what are you afraid of? And I was like, I think what I'm afraid of right now is try, trying to explain what I, what I do. Um, hmm. Because it's so many things. I, I, I'm usually introduced as a polar explorer, which is a ludicrous job title, obviously. Um, uh, I, I, I normally say when I'm asked, I've spent 20, the last 20 years leading polar expeditions, which is confusing because it makes it sound like I've been taking people to these places, which is not the case. Mm. I've done a lot of trips on, on, completely on my own. Um, I, I'm. I've been envious for years of friends of mine who are like, oh, I'm a mountaineer. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, you know, a sailor. I'm a, you know, whatever, rock climber. Um, and explorer has all the wrong connotations on so, so many levels. It, it, it's, it's like being in the army and call yourself a warrior. Um, adventurer isn't right because it makes it sound like I said a wing wingsuit off cliffs with a GoPro strapped to my head, and that's that's not the case. I, I'm not. I don't think I'm a adrenaline junkie. Um, if it, I think the reality is. I'm a, I'm a, have been spent 20 years as a really weird sort of endurance athlete. Um, mm-hmm. and also in, in hindsight, I guess, as a storyteller, that's, that's how I ended up making a living out of this, this stuff. So, um, yeah, 12 big polar expeditions in the last 20 years, about four and a half thousand miles on, on foot, either in the Arctic or Antarctica. And can I chuck in world record holder in there as well? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's hanging. It's in the downstairs loo downstairs. Um, yeah, I have that. I, I still hold. Still, I, I'm fascinated to see who might have a crack at this. I mean, they'd have to be a total total loon. Um, I still hold the world record for the longest ever polar journey on foot, um, which uh, is uh, you'll see you'll see two different numbers. One is 1,795 statue miles, and one is 1,801. 1,795 was the number on my GPS when we stopped walking. Um, two of us, um, I was with a great friend of mine with a wonderful name, Tarka Le Pignier. Uh, Tarka is half French, obviously. Um, and he and I, uh, this was back in 2013, 2014. So we started in October 13, finished in t- February 2014. So three and a half months, basically traveling on skis, wearing harness, each dragging a sledge. We walked from the, the coast of Antarctica, a place of Ross Island on the, the New Zealand side, to the South Pole, turned around, walked back again. So the GPS at the end of that journey said 1,795 miles. 
I, I then had a message from someone who who specialises in in GPS and GIS and mapping and tracking and satellites and data, and he said, "Well, that's that's probably wrong um, because GPS apparently assumes the Earth is a perfect sphere, which it's not. It, it's squished a bit at the top of the bottom. So he reckoned we walked mm. six miles further. So um, which I'm happy at eighteen hundred one thousand eight hundred one miles. So nearly seventy marathons um, back to back in the <laughs> coldest, windiest, driest, highest altitude place on, on Earth." I think for the purposes of maintaining your your world record, maybe label it <laughs> and then wait until somebody gets to the end. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you, you did a fantastic job of of really compressing a lot of achievement into um, a small bite sized explanation, and, and I'm definitely going to be quizzing you and challenging you for for more on it because it's it's a feat that you know 99.999 percent of people are not even going to get close to thinking about, let alone doing. Um, and I'm going to guess peg this to just your lead into it so you you were at sandhurst and i mm. would love to know how you went from from there to i guess concocting the idea of the expedition or or evading a normal kind of career trajectory to say that this is something i i, I feel i have to undertake so what happened mm. with that yeah well in a way sandhurst and my, my army career was not particularly illustrious it lasted 11 months i i left sandhurst in, in the third term so i was never commissioned as, as an officer um, but even that, looking back, was it was a stepping stone, you know, aspiring to do this sort of stuff. Well, you know, one day, um, and it's 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 difficult looking back to sort of pinpoint exactly where this came from and where this started. Most of my most of my childhood was was rural Devon and Somerset, so country bumpkin. Loved being outdoors. Uh, was lucky enough that I could be outdoors. I mean, it was I'm 43 now, so I, I don't know if these sorts of childhoods are possible anymore. But I was, you know, my brother. I have a younger brother, a couple of years younger than me. We we just spend, you know, summer holidays, weekends. We just be outside all day. Mum would like cook breakfast and give us a little pat lunch, and we just disappear. And we'd be climbing trees and building camps and tree houses and damming up rivers and getting into trouble and just. And then we'd rock up in the afternoon, yeah, hungry and muddy and. Yeah, just a lot of lot of freedom, um, and I was one of those children that did not respond well to uh, being told to sit down at a desk in a classroom with the windows closed for an hour and don't say anything and just remember what you're being told because that's important. I didn't I didn't learn that way, and I, obviously we're all wired differently. But I think I even early on I realised I I I learned from. Um, sort of experiencing stuff and trying stuff and playing with things. Like I, I loved, I'm a big geek deep down. I loved, mm. um, or at some point secondary school, we did sort of really rudimentary electronics. Like here's a circuit board, here's an LED, here's a buzzer, here's a switch, yeah. here's a, you know, loved that. That made real, I've, I've got some, my brain likes logic and, 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 and putting things together, engineering, that, that sort of thing. Um, but I, yeah, academically did, did not excel. Um, also kind of all over the place. My, my mum and my, biological father divorced when I was t- I was five um, and my dad was kind of on the scene for a few more years and, th- and then vanished completely when I was 10 or 11 mum remarried that was that was kind of uh, turbulent for years in some ways um, and I, I went to I think six different schools could have been seven so it was often like the odd one out who didn't get picked for the football team because that was already there yeah so um, <clears throat> so kind of a childhood in some ways like ludic- ludicrously idyllic. I was climbing trees and, you know, running through fields and in other ways, you know, had its had its share of challenges. Um, but I loved, and I think this was perhaps a response looking back with my sort of entirely amateur 
psychologist hat on. Uh, as a kid, I loved reading about explorers and um, and yeah, kind of pioneers. Like I loved, like, I was really into sci-fi as a kid. Like I mean, you know, Star Wars and Star Trek, and you know, the the shuttle flights were going up on 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 news rounds. Yeah, you know, sort of kids' TV news. Um, and I was fascinated by that. I, I remember I was super young, but I re- I can re- vividly remember the news footage of um, British soldiers, you know, commandos coming back from the Falklands War and seeing the sort of the, 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 the rust streak ships coming back into, I think it was Devonport Dockyard and, and you know, or Portsmouth or somewhere. And, um, and you know, the wives and girlfriends and, you know, with the flags and the guys with their berries. And so, so I looked up to, and I think I was, I think because there was a gap where my dad, wasn't anymore i think i was looking for some sort of um template some kind of role models like what, what, what am i what am i aspiring to here what am i trying to turn into um and looking back i i obviously latched on to what i now think of, of, of almost ludicrously overblown caricatures of, of kind of macho accomplishment you know men conquering things winning medals in battle and climbing mountains and you know um and and lo and behold i've ended up you know as a guy with a big beard who often wears big boots and and you know does stuff in the outdoors so i certainly has done a lot of that over 20 years so i think that's kind of where it started from and i had um what should have been a gap year and i'm still on it now i've never i never made it to university mm, so i i, I, yeah. I worked I worked um, for the best part of a year up in right up in the Scottish Highlands, right up in the northwest corner of, of you know, mainland Britain, for a guy called John Ridgway, who I'd read a few of his books and saw it. There was a TV program about him back in the nineties, and I, my brother and I, learned that he had founded a thing called the John Ridgway School of Adventure, and it was a, a sort of outward bound centre on steroids. Uh, he never did any marketing; it was all word of mouth, and he ran these. Um, Bowl accounts, incredibly successful, well-received, um, like team building courses. So week-long courses, very remote Scottish Highlands. And we saw, my brother and I saw this on TV as teenagers. And we noticed that most of his, that, you know, people working for him were, his instructors were, seemed young, seemed like teenagers or maybe early twenties. So I basically applied for a job up there because um, I was quite outdoorsy. I'd, I'd been in the scouts. I'd done a bit of climbing and hiking and kayaking and outdoorsy stuff. So I, I, to my surprise, ended up working there. Um, and he was, that was, that was where the screw came loose. He was an extraordinary character. And I, my wife and I saw him last year, he's 82 now, which was, which is a whole other story kind of like, I, I would disagree with don't meet your heroes, but meeting your heroes, meeting your superheroes when they're in their eighties and they have a, you know, sort of heart bypass and a, and a knee replacement and a, and a you know, hearing aid. That's, that's, that's humbling. Um, so, well, not humbling, but 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 thought provoking. Um, so that that was that was the year that did it. I was outdoors the whole time. I was part of a small group of guys, a couple of women, girls working down there as well. So small group of people outdoors every day, leading teams. Looking back, a ridiculous amount of responsibility for I was eighteen, nineteen, like mm. leading teams in the mountains and pretty remote, pretty epic conditions. So I had to grow up pretty quickly. Um, this was. In the, in the weird parallel universe before mobile phones, before the internet, um, I guess it must be like 96, seven, maybe. Um, so if I wasn't outdoors in the mountains or sailing or kayaking, um, I was reading books because that's all there was to do. We didn't have a TV. Um, so uh, yeah, I, and I worked my way through John's collection of, of 
extraordinary library of books and and the stuff that i really loved was was the 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 kind of edwardian british scott shackleton polar exploration just <laughs> fascinated by it um and 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 some of the contemporary stuff you know ronald fines i, I read yeah. his book uh mind over matter when i was up there that year age 19. um so yeah that's and, and another yeah, robert swan he wrote a book called in the footsteps of scott and i remember reading that actually before in scotland i had a part-time job in a shop and i borrowed this book from the library and started reading it my lunch break in the little staff tea room thing and ah oh, yeah just that blew my mind just on account of the fact that that I told my mum about this beforehand, and she she absolutely loves Scott. Like she she talks him to death, and there's a picture of him, a really old old school one, on, on the wall. And she used to she used to talk about Randolph Fiennes and and all of mm. these iconic characters. And so I've grown up um, with that kind of historical context and and mm. the weight of it, right? Because she'd always talk about the amazing feats of these men under the conditions available to them at the time. And the unknown, mm. it was the genuine, unexplored yeah. unknown of a man going into a situation where often the only way to even get any feedback or, or mm. data on this new uh, exploration was people would die or people would come yeah. back. But it was, yeah. it was, it was difficult. And so I, could, I it's, and it's so nice that you, you found a place or, or, or a mentor figure that could hand down some of that knowledge because it's so easy mm. to, to lose it nowadays. And, and, mm. you know, as you mm. say, the advent of technology is, has eroded some of that unknown. Yeah, and so therefore yeah. the explorations are not relative to each other. Um, so did you just get to a situation where where you were in the outdoors and, and there needed to be more of this or it was giving you an inclination towards a direction? Yeah, I, well, I, I so John Ridgway had been in the army. He was in the parachute regiment and the SAS. Ronald Fiennes had been in the army, also special forces, like Chris Bonington, one of Britain's like, most accomplished mountaineers, he'd been in the army. Um, so there seemed to be this, even even Bear Grylls, who I started to read about, like not long after that, sort of his first book when he climbed Everest, he'd been in the army and the territorial army. So like the, the, that, that to me, as a teenager, seemed like the logical, okay, that's what I need to do if I want to end up doing this kind of stuff one day, because um, that's what I'm daydreaming about. So I... I loved the challenge of getting in. So I was at Sandhurst, as you know, Royal Military Academy, um, pretty prestigious, pretty high standards, just getting in, like who they accept. They almost universally insist on graduates. I didn't have a degree. Um, and it, I can sound quite posh because my stepdad was pretty posh. Um, so I, I sort of, it was like cultural appropriation. Like I, I saw how people treated him differently. So I started to emulate his accent, I think. But I'm almost entirely state school through and through. I went to, I, I did a few months at a boarding, like prep school when I was, I guess, like 10, because my mum was in hospital for, for, for a while. Um, and yeah, but otherwise, state school through and through, no degree. My my dad was a bricklayer and he was an orphan. It was no, there's no family tree. There's no history that I know of of anyone being in the armed forces. So I didn't have um, any of those advantages that, uh, that, that some of my peers at that time might have had and i love that i love being the underdog i love i love the challenge of trying to trying to work my way through the system so i really enjoyed the challenge of getting into sandhurst and persuading people at interview that actually i was i'm what you're looking for and yeah um i love the physicality of it as you can probably imagine um love that i i realized very quickly once i was in i i did not respond well to following orders 
um, and, and orders that you follow because they're your orders. And you, you don't question them, like, you don't do that. It just, you just do it, you know? <laughs> so I was like, wait, wait a minute. Um, and it was a, a, a twist of fate, really. I, I was, I crashed my car, turned 21, bought, bought a cool car, crashed it very quickly after that and um, injured my leg quite badly, taken out of training on crutches for weeks and suddenly had time to think. And, and it, was a, it was a real shock because suddenly you, you, the rest of your platoon, this, they're, they're all single sex. I was in with 29 other guys, group of 30. Um, they all carry on and suddenly you're on the sidelines. And for the first time, it's super intensive. Um, it's a you know, year long commissioning course, unless you are not good enough, in which case you're sort of held back and you repeat a term, but it, it's 12 months. It's super high, high, you know, high pressure, high intensity and bits of it. I love, I don't regret joining the army for a second. I, I don't regret that time at, at Santos for a second, the, the responsibility you're given. I was 21 and mm -hmm. on exercise, I, I remember being put in charge. We, we call it being dicked. If you got, if you were chosen, yeah, right, right. Saunders. Yeah. Okay. you for the next 90 minutes. You are effectively, you know, company commander in charge of 90 soldiers. And we've got artillery here, helicopters here, you know, the enemy are here. Um, uh, here's the map. Uh, right, what happens next? And someone starts a stopwatch. Everyone looks at you, and you're like, "Fuck!" Like, just so the pressure is immense. And I don't, I don't think. Um, I mean, perhaps some founders will, will come across that that pressure to make decisions. But in most normal jobs, there's no way you're going to get asked to make this kind of decisions age 21. Straight, it's mm. straight. It's a few weeks in, you know. So, um, so I loved. I, I, I kind of thrived on the pressure, um, and the sort of high standards, and trying to. To, to live up to them. Um, but I did not respond well to authority. Um, yeah, kind of kind of absolute authority. And, and you know, the, 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 when you're going through the sort of selection process, new process, it's, it's all about initiative and you need to be a, a leader and make decisions. Yeah. And actually you're a cog in a machine in, in so many ways. Um, so yeah, I left the army. I think my mum wondered, I think when I got into Sandhurst, she was, like really proud of me a photo of me in uniform holding a sword yeah mm. and when i left I, I actually went back to working part-time in a shop that i worked in as a teenager i literally like full circle nothing in my bank account like back in the same job part-time so um yeah the, my army career was short-lived um and the first expedition I, I was 23 years old so it's with a guy called pen haddo pen with a p um and he had a a business that I, I reckon was about 10 or 15 years like before its time. It, it was called the Polar Travel Company. He was, he was trying to sell like guided expeditions to the polar regions and um, with, with great difficulty, I think. Mm. And this was back, so this must be like 99, 2000. Uh, this was, I, I mentioned I'm a geek. I bought my first domain name in 1999. I bought, I bought my name, com in 99, had it ever since. And, um, but you, back then you'd get like five emails a week and it was so cool getting an email. So I, I emailed Penn Haddo, which of course he was like, oh, yeah, I got a reply straight back. Hmm. Um, he was advertising a, a trip to the magnetic North Pole, which is like two weeks and you had to raise, yeah, it, it costs, I don't know, 15 grand or something. And I was thinking, well, maybe I've got no money, but maybe I could raise that. Like, that's a huge challenge, but maybe I could do that. So I applied to join that. He said, well, tell Ben, come and meet me. I, I live on the edge of Dartmoor. Let's kind of come down, come and stay the night. We'll go for a bit of a hike. I think he wanted to sort of check me out. And we did this sort of quite challenging day out in the hills, which I thrived on. I lo loved that stuff. And um, so he clearly thought I was suitable material even though i was young 22 23 
Uh, and he said, look, we, we, I've got a team going to the geographic North Pole next year. So much for like 600 miles, two months on the ice. Uh, he said, we have a couple of guides and a couple of sort of airdrops by helicopter of food and supplies and things. So we haven't got to drag tons of everything. It'll be a long trip, a hard trip, but accessible. Um, and you've only got to raise, I can't remember, it's like 40 grand. I was like, whoa, hmm. Uh, hmm. okay, um, uh, cool. Like sign me up, brilliant, I'll figure it out. And then um, I still don't know the full story, but the, the team basically um, vanished. Uh, I don't know if a sponsor pulled out, went bust or what happened, but Penn, Penn got in touch. He was like, ah, um, I've, you know, I've like paid deposits with sort of Russian helicopter charter companies. I'm not gonna see that money back in. So tell you what, why don't, why don't just you and I, why don't we do it together, just two of us. And if we don't have the airdrops of food and things, you're, you're pretty strong and fit and tough and young. If we drag everything from the start, It'll make it cheaper. And we'll, we'll be the first British team in history to do this. You'll be the youngest person ever, like world records. So I was like, woo, you know, like amazing. Like count me in, fantastic. Like in at the deep end, but I'm up for it. And he was like, yeah, you just got raised like another 40 grand or something. I can't remember what it was. And I was just like, what? Um, and I knew nothing about fundraising, sponsorship. I had no money. Um, and my first ever meeting with a sponsor was my mum's boss at the time. And I think he just took pity on me. And I'd, I'd prepared my little pitch deck and went into this meeting. And I think this was before PowerPoint even existed. I just printed out this thing. Um, and um, before I knew PowerPoint existed anyway. And uh, I, I basically, my whole pitch was centered on the fact that my heroes invariably were, were in the pages in the newspaper or in national geographic and they always had like embroidered sponsor badges on their sleeves or on the hat or a flag you know at the pole so i pitched my whole my whole thing on, on selling him a logo on my jacket for like five grand or something and i started out by saying you know i'm traveling pen haddo he's an expert really experienced it's gonna be this amazing like kind of apprentice mentor relationship and we're going to spend eight weeks walking 600 miles give or take over the frozen surface of the arctic ocean like we're walking over the sea because the north pole is in the middle of the sea um it's 5.4 million square miles bigger than america but nobody's there like it's the, it's a huge wilderness you know and and we're gonna be out there for for you know eight weeks on our own middle of nowhere most remote place on the planet and he basically looked up he said who the hell is going to see our logo when you're in the middle of 5.4 million square miles of nothing <laughs> and, I, and i was just completely completely stumped i was like oh uh yeah <laughs> so we, we we somehow got a shoestring budget together set off from the north coast of siberia like february uh 2001 this was 23 years old and to cut a very long story short we we, we didn't make it we got about two-thirds of the way there 59 days 50 well 59 nights on a tent on the sea ice attacked by a polar bear on day two i had frostbite in a toe it was so it was when you say attacked uh, uh, yeah. um <laughs> in what in what way because i imagine yeah. if you've got your well, stuff and you've got your gear on and then yeah. taking flight I mean, I mean i mean yeah i mean maybe maybe approached by a polar bear is, is probably a probably a uh, more, more. Um, but there's nothing. There's nothing else around it. either, right? So if it's looking at yeah. you, it's like you're not looking at anybody yeah, else, yeah, and yeah. I'm not going to be able to leg it to the nearest. Yeah, you know. and it was it was walking toward. We, we we were we were really on the lookout for polar bears, certainly in the first couple of weeks near the Russian coastline. Like yeah. they, they, there are quite a lot out there, and um, and they're big creatures. You know, the heaviest recorded male adult polar bear is just over a thousand kilos, so a ton. Yeah. Um, and I I often add like I don't know who weighs polar bears for a living, but somebody has had a more a bizarre career than, than, than mine <laughs> um but um 
but yeah, big creatures, they can apparently move at up to 30 miles per hour if they want to, um, kind of sprinting after prey. Our top speed wearing harnesses, pulling sledges was like 1.4 miles per hour. So there's, there's no way you can outrun the bear. So you have to stand your ground and try and convince it that you are bigger and scarier than it is. So we, we were armed. We had a, we travel up through Russia, so you can't take firearms with you. So we had to buy something essentially on the black market in, in northernmost Siberia, which was a, a like proper Farmer Giles shotgun, like a 12 double barrel, you know, 12 bore shotgun, which naturally we were assessed by saving weight. So the lighter the sledges, the higher chance of success. So we'd, we'd cut the labels out of clothes, cut the handle off a toothbrush, you know, all the foods freeze dried, all, all that stuff. Um, so naturally we'd sawn off this shotgun. Um, and we had a, a sort of selection of ammunition, like from blank bangers up up to sort of, you know, lead slugs, basically. But we weren't there on a safari. We didn't want to harm a bear. It was really just to make a loud noise and try and scare it off. So Penn was in charge of the gun. Anyway, it, it, it didn't work. It jammed like five times before he fired a shot in the air and, and the bear finally walked off. But it, it was pretty close. It was probably 10 or 15 meters away from, from me. And weird experience. Um, yeah. I've never felt anything like it um you know hadn't felt anything like it before haven't ever felt anything like it since um this weird feeling of like back against the wall like probably like somewhere deep down like reptilian brain like like prey like uh, i don't want to get eaten here like i, I don't right, want and, this to happen and that's the currency um, in the discussion and, that's taking place right? yeah like... and and Oh. Yeah, no, and, and, and people say, God, didn't you feel scared? There was zero fear. Yeah. What there was was absolute fury, like anger. Like, no, no, this is not going to play out like this. I'm 23. I'm not going to get eaten. Like, this is not supposed to happen. This absolute anger at this situation. I've never known anything like it. It was a really, really weird experience. Um, and everything went into slow motion. I mean, like all the time in the world. To, but I couldn't think what to do. Well, Penn's got the gun, got the guns and work. Like, what do I do? Do I, do I, do I grab one of my skis and try and you know, whack it with a ski or just poke it with a ski pole? Or what can I do? Have I got any food I can throw to distract it? So I, I all the time in the world, I tried to go, go through my options, trying to work this out and couldn't quite figure out what to do really. And then bang, the gun went off. Um, so it's it's a fun story. It was it was pretty, uh, yeah, pretty pretty startling at the time, and I I still remember that that absolute anger, um, really odd feeling. Something about wild animals that I think when we interact with them in the wild, not in a zoo, in in context, mm. and uh, you, as you say, it sort of has a really primal conversation with you, which you don't expect, and it's. It's not the fear that you anticipate. It's very much the reality of, of the fact you don't know how this plays out. As you mm. say, being eaten is a, is a really alien concept to us as we exist now. Mm. But actually, mm. our ancestors would have known that that was a threat that was taking place. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. You, you can't it was, really... It was, the, it, was, it was something really like hardwired, somewhere deep. I'd never accessed that before. I was like, what, 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 this is... You know, but also, it was. I guess it was kind of allied with this like, I don't want to hurt you. Like mm. you're absolutely. This is amazing. It's a freaking polar bear. That's amazing. You're massive. Like wow. Like but but no. I don't. I don't, I do not want to get eaten. Like this isn't. And and then also this might. I fear this might sound like really conceited, like Ant Middleton style. Well, I was going to go down swinging. I wasn't scared. But it's it's not that. It was just some out of nowhere, absolute anger. Like no, 
didn't I mean I, my mum and stepdad had divorced and my mum was renting a little cottage and I sort of stayed there for a bit but but there wasn't really any room for me and all my stuff and sleeping bag and boots and skis and you know so she made it clear I need to find somewhere to live and I had no job I had no savings I had a girlfriend had no degree like I remember like sitting on a sofa she'd go to work and I'd be watching Trisha and, and Kilroy and all the crap that was on back then and just and just like really probably quite depressed actually um genuinely depressed for a while thinking oh god that was a that was a that was a mistake that was a failure and then my, and of course my, my stepfather i don't talk to him now but he i remember him giving this lecture saying well i told you that was a really stupid thing to do and the idea that you could that this could you could somehow make money out of this i yeah i just i'd never heard any more like, the sooner you get this out of your system and knuckle down and get a job and get a mortgage and a pension and you know the better so I think a little bit of my career, some some little part of my motivation has been this, like, well, no, like, watch this. You know, if I'm told I can't do something, which is impossible, or I'm not able and not up to it, like, I'm like, okay, well, you know, screw you, watch this. Um, and I I, mean, I mentioned buying the house in the country a couple of years ago. And my, my ultimate midlife crisis, um, I'm just reaching over to my desk to, I, I don't, the car isn't here, but I have a key ring on my desk. Um, I bought a, it's a, I bought a Porsche 911 to GT3. So oh, it's like cool. it's a yeah. really cool car, yeah. and it's on a my my keyring is a is a is a piston bully piece basher because we were using those in Antarctica. I was work, working down there in the 2019 um, building runways and things. So that was like the 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 final. My stepdad doesn't know he's I've got it, but I think internally, like the final V sign up at him uh, for telling me this was never going to work. I was an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so between that first fa- failed expedition and getting yourself off the couch again, I mean, what mm. uh, was it that motivation, or do you think through all of it, there's been something else kind of? Yeah, uh, with the, yeah, the, cru- the, the the crucial step that I I, I I omitted there was was after a week or two of of, of daytime TV on the sofa, feeling sorry for myself. Um, the the post came through Lesbox, and there was a letter to me, and it was from a solicitor, but it was basically. Um, Penn and I had this agreement that we'd split the cost 50-50 and, and I'd raised what I could. We hadn't met our target, but we, we just about did the, the trip. And it turned out Penn then got invoiced. We, we'd, we'd racked up you know, more hours in the helicopters in Siberia, which is all expensive. So I got a, I got a bill for £34,615, which was my half of the, the outstanding you know, debt from this expedition. And I, I had, yeah, my mum was broke, you know, renting a house, just divorced, still in court, I think. And I hadn't got any money and I didn't know anyone that had any money. And I was thinking, shit, like I, I can either, like, I, I think I was working in the shop again. I was like, oh, if I, oh, it's gonna be ten, maybe like 10 years I could pay this back on like what I'm earning now. Uh, but I can't, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to rent my own place or anything. Like, I, how am I going to figure this out? And then at some point I was like, well, what if I did another expedition? Mm-hmm. Like I could just roll that into the budget, and and that's that's basically how it started. So so yeah, of of my twelve expeditions, the, the first two were very much Ponzi scheme, like paying off the debt from the. First. So it, it was, and 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 that might sound like wildly, it was wildly wildly reckless, but I think also that there's possibly a lesson there about commitment in the genuine. Like a lot of people like to think they're committed to things a lot of people like to think they're risk takers but mm. not not many people really are and that yeah that early lesson like oh i've dug a hole so deep here i need to figure this out no one's going to come and help me I, i've got to dig my way out of this like the only way out is through and all these other cliches but like that was that was a seminal moment for me 
that like oh fuck okay i'm responsible for this i'm in a load of trouble now i need to figure this out um why is he saying that there's the there's there's the carrot the stick or or it sounds like the carrot and the stick in yeah carrot and a a stick in a deep hole (laughs) yeah and 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 you are you are right is that there's a lot of there's a lot of knowing nowadays there's a lot of desire to be strategically taking risk or strategically Mm -hmm. adventuring um and you know I love reading about the the, the kind of Himalayan over eight thousand meter mountains, and mm. very clearly mm. Everest is not what it once was. You look at the the kind of mm. queue going up to the Hillary Step, which I think has now collapsed, and it's mm. it, it, somebody else has gone and figured all these steps out. So you look at it and you go, "I want to get to this top point." So you're not going to find what you're looking for at the top of that journey. And mm. actually, what's mm. interesting about what you said is, I don't know if frame that way if you were meant to just find relief. If it was, as you say, just digging yourself out of a hole, or if you sat there and you know mm. after after expedition one did you go that was a bloody good achievement or is it like no i have to I have <laughs> oh no to- I, I, I yeah at the time i thought it was abject failure i i felt ashamed hadn't got there i, I had i had absolute conviction we're going to pull this off and mm. i'd come back to heroes welcome and life would be awesome and, and it and it wasn't so part of me was like okay i've got to go and try again and i think there was looking back you know i was still early 20s then i, I think there was a lot of ego involved in those uh, those first few expeditions and and by ego actually probably like profound lack of self-esteem self-worth yeah. uh, deep hunger for some sort of validation um and I, I don't want to get too too sort of cringy here but clearly like my dad did a runner when i was a kid and i, I think there, there were probably pretty early on these sort of questions around like oh why did i get abandoned why wasn't i good enough for it like okay what have i got to do here um so early on uh you know early 20s early part of my career there was a lot of that there was a lot of a lot of ego a lot lot of um desperately wanting people to be approving and to say like well done ben like wow check it out like what yeah that's amazing like you've done something really cool um and I got a bit of that. I, you know, I, I started to sort of get a few of these metaphorical scout badges. You know, I skied solo to the North Pole, 2004, 26 years old, which I now feels so young. That's I can't, really I young. can't, really I can't young. believe my sponsors took a punt. You know, that was, that was six figures. That was several hundred grand. That was a big project. Like 26. That's mad. Um, how so you, how did you risk profile that? I mean, as, as, as obviously going <laughs> solo, I mean, I don't mm. know if it's proportional, but it seems like with two people, at least there's somebody to radio about an issue or something. But if you yeah. actually break your leg on a pair of skis. Or... Yeah, it, 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 it is pretty risky. I mean, that, that was looking back, I think the riskiest thing I've ever done. I don't think I fully, fully appreciate it at the time. And I also think I probably didn't have a lot to lose. I didn't, I wasn't in a, I, mean, I had a girlfriend, but I wasn't, it wasn't a particularly serious relationship. I didn't, I still didn't have any money. I didn't have a, I didn't own a home. I didn't, I was, I was still on, on the, on the hunt for something. And it, to me at the time, the risk was justifiable. And, um, and I, and I guess I, by that point, I got good enough at making that case to sponsors because we raised, I raised a lot of money for that, for that trip. And it sort of, that's when it started to become a business. I was inadvertently, the CEO of this weird thing it was more than just me. Suddenly, I had a team. I had a full-time expedition manager. Someone like paying his salary. Like it's a bit. It's a limited company business. Um, and so I was the CEO, but I was also the product. Like I was the thing we were shipping. Um, so that was a interesting um, 
learning curve and, and you know trajectory that I hadn't anticipated. Um, and uh, yeah, it's 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 and it's always a bit of a whirlwind kind of building up to these trips because you're you're training. I often say it feels like training for the Olympic, not that I've trained for the Olympics, but I'd imagine it's like training for the Olympics, but also trying to project manage the build of the stadium or the swimming pool at the same time. Like you're juggling all this stuff. So the the good part about that is that you don't have a second. It's like Sandhurst. You're so so much pressure. You don't have a second to stop and think. Well, what what am I doing here? Mm. How do I how do I feel like existentially about this? You know, you don't, you never have that opportunity until, in my case, helicopter lands out of the door, sledge harness, you know, skis clip, door closes, rotors start turning, and there's this like immediate like, oh no, no 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 no, like like literally like having to stop myself running back to the helicopter. And, banging on the side like guys guys i ha i actually i haven't thought this through um so sheer terror and i think people often assume i might be wired differently and and, and don't experience self-doubt or fear or any of those and that is not the case mm. like absolutely terrified to start that trip this the, the realization suddenly because they, there comes this point and it's and it's a cliff edge where you can no longer prepare yeah you've done everything you can to prepare and you're in like poof, starts well, that's um, and with a lot of things yeah like it's, it's something's on the horizon and actually when it's there mm. you 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 aren't dealing with the consequences of it it's it's a bit mm. i don't want to draw the analogy to covid too much but it was a bit like when we we're talking about it Italy. <laughs> it was like we, we all feel bad it sounds awful and it wasn't till it was on our doorstep that it's like now you have to adjust yeah. this and same with, with you it's yeah. like and and i always think when i was reading your notes about that that guy who uh the film into the wild was made about right who, who just mm. set off mm. and he 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 just got it wrong, and you mm. don't. You never know that you haven't made a decision. You can't make the decision looking backwards. It's not. You don't know how mm. it ends, and that's the difficulty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was yeah. That was interesting. My my plan that year, which was even more absurd, was to go all the way across to Canada. So from Russia to the North Pole to Canada, which which no one two two Norwegian Marines. I mean, the hardest of the hard men had done it a couple of years previously, and. One of them, there was a doctor on the ski plane that picked them up at the very end of that journey, like a hundred and something days. And he said he was 48 hours away from death. Um, so for, for some reason, like to the 26 year old me or 24, 25, when I started planning this thing, like that, this seemed like a good thing to go and have a crack at. I mean, I'm not, I'm probably giving totally wrong impression here. I, 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 I think looking back, like already I was looking at this almost as an athlete. I, mm. I, I wasn't. Like the term explorer, I've never been comfortable with that. Um, I'm not trying to find out where the North Pole is. That's all being done. But I was interested in the in the the distance, like the the the, the sort of physiological demands of making that kind of journey. The the well, mental, the psychological demands of that kind of journey. Geek scientist part of you, which wants to yeah, 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 yeah. Can, can, and that's and that's very very much how I approached it. Can you um can you give me just I guess like the nitty gritty for anybody you know who who wants to hear this little five minute gambit of what food do you mm. bring? What exercises do you do? What are the daily challenges that start eating with your yeah, body? And, yeah, and just yeah. give so, me the like the real sort of factor. Yeah, gosh, gosh. Yeah. So there's I guess for each for each expedition, um, there's probably about a year, eighteen months of, of training to get fit. And I've always taken that really seriously because I'm a, I'm a geek, I love it. I, I like the metrics and the data and seeing myself getting fitter and yeah, et cetera. But you you you're the ultimate jack of all trades. In some ways, it's a bit like CrossFit because you're trying to train endurance and strength but it's not like crossfit at all because endurance is over weeks and months even that north pole trip was over a thousand kilometers so it's a long way you're not like crossfit you might do a 5k run as part of a workout but 
you're not going to do a thousand kilometers over 10 weeks. Um, so, so you have to have this, this genuine endurance, um, and you have to be really strong because the sledge that you're dragging at the start of that trip was 180 kilos. So, so more than twice my body weight. So you have to be strong enough to be able to move the sledge. And then also you have to start fat. You have to literally have body fat because there's no way that you can drag, let alone consume enough calories to replace what you're burning every day. So you, as soon as you start, you're on this, this, this sort of constant downward physical slope of, of, of decline and each, each you physically cannot recover. So it just gets harder and harder. Even though the sledge gets lighter, there's this weird mm. sort of two, two, two curves going on. So it never feels easier, even though most of the weight in the sledge is food. And it was 180 kilos at the start and maybe 20 something kilos at the finish. Nothing. You could pick it up. Um, and yet it's still hard because by that stage, you've lost 15 kilos and, and you're buggered. Um, and any any sensible exercise physiologist would, would uh, if I said well, that trip was 70 days or 10 weeks, I think I had two rest days. So if, if I said, yeah, I'm going to do 10 hours a day of exercise, seven days a week uh, for two and a half months. Yeah. Um, and not quite, probably not sleep enough, five, six hours a night uh, on a restricted calories, or eating 6,000 calories a day, but I'm going to be burning more like nine. So, you know, there's calorie deficit. They'd say, you, you're, you're mad. Like you're going you're gonna to get injured, you're going to get ill, you're overtrained, you're going to really mess yourself up. So it's, it's a weird thing to sort of prepare for, especially with a bit of knowledge about sports science, human performance, because you, you know that what you're doing is, yeah. is going to just mess your body up. Like it's not a healthy thing to go and do really. Um, so yeah, about 18 months of training. So it's like weird mix of like training as if you're an ultra marathon runner, but also like a power lifter, like heavy, heavy deadlifts and squats and things. And just trying not to get massive because the more muscle you've got, the less efficient you are. So you train with weird athletes and then you get fat, which is depressing. Mm. Um, and, <laughs> and, <laughs> Although I imagine yeah. you don't, how, how, like literally again, just, um, how often do you see yourself without your shirt on? How often do you go for a shower? Oh, ne yeah. never, no, exactly. Never, never. I don't, I don't even think I had a mirror. I think I had a tiny little mirror just to check if I had frostbite on my face. Like tiny little, so I never saw my body. I mean, I saw my, I'm seeing my legs. I'm being really shocked. I sort of changed my thermal underwear, you know, for the second time on the whole trip after uh, eight weeks or something. And, 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 and I could get my hands around my quads, which I was really surprised about. I'd never been able to do that before. I was like, oh, pretty, pretty skinny. Yeah, and they're the main powerhouse, right? <laughs> so, like, I, need, um, I need those. Like, yeah, don't waste yeah, away yeah. on me too quickly. Yeah, like, lose yeah. some weight off the belly, not yeah, off the, yeah, yeah. the legs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, and then, like day to day life. I mean, this trip, uh, solo trip. So, so I, knew, I mean, most of my experience been with small teams, two or three. But I've done uh, a handful. I mean, two long solo expeditions. So both both North and South Poles on my own. Um, so this North Pole trip, 2004, was 10, 10 weeks. So seventy two nights on my own in a tent, and you're dragging a sledge, wearing a harness, traveling on skis. The skis have skins, strips of fabric that give you traction on the the snow and the ice. Um, Normally, skins are removable, so you can like skin up the mountain and take them off, ski down on the other side. But there, there's no downhill. I'm just skinning the whole time, dragging the sledge. So the the skins are like glued on. There are little screws in them to hold them on as well. So um, so basically, walking on the skis, dragging this, leaning into this harness, using ski poles as well, uh, working away. Um, uh, it's pretty hard work, and 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 because you're traveling over the sea, the Arctic Ocean, it's not flat. It's, it's all smashed up. This is kind of, you, if you fly over the Arctic Ocean, it's not one big crust of ice. It's lots of floating bits of ice called pans. It's, if, if you're high enough, 
it's like a, a pond with lots of big white lily pads. So uh, when these things come together, they crumple up and you get what's called a pressure ridge. Uh, they act like sails. So then if it's windy, the ice gets even more smashed up. It's all floating. Mm. You're just walking over the sea. There, there are no maps because it's the sea. And, and part of the, I think part of the magic, because this probably sounds like just absolute horrible suffering. Like why the hell would you want to do, what, what, what is the appeal? Um, part of the appeal is, and it's, this took a while to really sink in. Um, I spent 10 weeks on planet Earth seeing stunning scenery, mm. beautiful ice scapes, and realizing that this scenery was unique to me because it's going to change. It's moving around the whole time. The sea ice is always shifting. It's always in constant, constant. So I spent 72 days on planet Earth seeing beautiful things that no one else has ever seen and no one else will ever see mm. in, in that combination that, that I witnessed. So there's a real magic and a joy. And it's not like I've got some weird, something that's gone wrong in my brain. I just love suffering. There's, there's beauty and magic and, and, and joy up there as well. So it's, 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 it's and, and therefore it's deeply compelling. I, I do, part of me worried for a long time, it must be like having some horrendous drug habit, like, like a sort of crack habit, heroin, like, like from the outside, looks like what are you doing to yourself but but like when you're you're like it's but it's so good mm -hmm. like, <laughs> not that i'm qualified to comment on, on no that. but you but you you i think fate <laughs> again a lot, a lot of this is not i'm not speaking from enough experience to to really be doing anything other than a, a sort of fairly poor attempt to relate to it but if you see <laughs> that view and it is unique and it is that majestic or amazing you you capture a bit of it right and it becomes part of your story so if you weren't feeling mm. unique or mm. valuable mm. it's like well i at least hold a chalice which was this thing that I'd recorded, that I'd mm. seen, that if you could upload my mm. brain via Neuralink to a, a server, it, it would be truly original and truly something that defines you. And actually within that... Yeah, it's 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 really... Uh, there's something really that I still struggle to define. And, and it felt that there was, there was some mm. inflection point on that journey, 2004. Uh, two or three weeks in, the first couple of weeks, it was um, a lot of the time very scary and really hard and and everything gradually gets like you're skiing into the spring so the temperatures are getting warmer now that's at a, after a point that becomes a problem because everything starts melting and it gets really sketchy then but there's this kind of sweet spot where it's not minus 48 like it was on day one it's actually minus 25 and that feels pretty balmy and, and you know and the sun's a bit high in the sky and it's not it's not windy it's not actually it doesn't Oh, like it doesn't feel like this place is trying to kill me, mm. which it felt like at many points early on. Like it felt like I'm not supposed to be here. This place is trying to kill me. It literally felt like that. It felt like there was this some sort of um, malice yeah. behind the elements. Like it's so. And and the only thing I can compare it to is maybe if you're outdoors, somewhere exposed in the hills, Brecon, and there's a thunderstorm. There's lightning. And that, I, I think a lot of people might be able to relate to that, like lightning when you're outdoors, exposed, like, ah, like suddenly the elements are threatening, yeah. scary. Like the weather's not really scary. We, we complain about it, but it's not scary. It doesn't, it doesn't literally make your heart race and think, well, oh God, am I going to get killed here? But so you, I think for most people, they, they, like it's lightning is in the, out in the open is the close some come, come to explain that, except you feel it all the time. Because the, all the time, this place is scary. The ice is moving around. You can feel it lying in your tent. You're, you're very aware that it's, you know, thousands of meters of sea beneath you. 
Um, and if it cracks under the tent in the night, you, 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 yeah, that's, that's complicated. Whereas, I was going to say, where I was getting to you briefly was that there was this inflection point where after two or three weeks, I felt happy out there. And I was kind of in the groove. I was, I was in this routine. I knew what I was doing. I was confident. I, 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 my navigation was really good. I was making progress, covering distance. I was like, oh, actually, okay, this is achievable. Okay, right. I'm kind of in the zone now. And, and, and then there was this weird feeling. And I've, I've very rarely tried to articulate this, um, where almost like this place was, was sort of opening up to me. And rather than, it almost felt like I was welcome there for the first time. Mm and really really weird feeling um and and not just that not just that i started to feel at, at, at ease at home out there um but also that it was trying to show me something tell me something like everything's melting like this is uh, it's all changing really fast so I, I i'm not i can't claim to be a sort of tree hugging you know kind of evangelistic sort of um preacher about climate change but i have certainly seen massive change in the, in the 20 years i've i've been lucky enough to know these places and, and there was this weird tipping point on that trip where i suddenly felt like oh okay actually there's something else here this this isn't just me using this place as, as a sort of arena to try and test myself the, oh there's something more to this um so that was a yeah interesting well moment. so so I, I can only liken that to reading about the astronaut overview effect of sometimes when people go on a spacewalk mm. and they just talk about the the scenery that they see sort of transforms them unavoidably so because I guess what's so interesting about listening to your journey is, is the length of it and the degree to which you started over time. Would you would you lose thoughts that tied you to back home and have more thoughts that were about the journey you were going on as a person? Or did you still, on a data basis, think, what's mum doing today? What's this doing today? And have those sort of check-ins that kind of created a reality benchmark? Or do you just lean into this experience? Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny. I, I my 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 second big polar expedition was many years later, twenty seventeen. Went back to Antarctica um, and and went solo to the South Pole. Sort of interesting routes from places like Burke Island. So that was about eight weeks on my own again. And I was secretly I didn't say this one at the time, but I was secretly lo really looking forward to it because I by this stage I'm like I know what I'm doing. I, I this this isn't really scaring me. I didn't say that, but I was like this I this is I, this is me and my, I know what to do now. So I was secretly looking forward to this like two weeks sort of two week two months um like silent retreat in antarctica and a bit of time to think and reflect and you know and things i was engaged like there was some big shifts going on in my life and new chapters opening up and also i was like looking it had been really busy on so many fronts so i was just looking forward to like two months in my tent just to sort of think yeah. and meditate and and what i'd completely forgotten about that first big 10-week solo expedition is you have no time to reflect because you're on it the whole time like you, you've got to be switched on that you cannot your mind cannot wander. Um, you're always navigating, timekeeping. You know, looking, trying to looking at the weather, like trying to judge. Okay, where's the wind coming? What's the best route through this bit of ice? Yeah, where, okay, right. Oh, hour and a half time to eat, drink. Okay, where's my food? Where's it? Right. Oh, all right. It's, I've done my last session. Right, I've got to put the tent up. Uh, oh, I've got to get all my stuff. I've got my sleeping bag and the stove and oh, food for tomorrow. And oh, I need to repair my jacket's torn, so I need my sewing kit. And then. Okay, I've got to dig up some snow because I then need to melt snow on the stove to get hot water, and I've got to make enough hot water for drinks tomorrow. You're busy, busy, busy the whole time. Like there is no time to reflect. And and paradoxically, on this very long expedition in Antarctica, 2013-14, when there were two of us, we we took it in turns 50-50 to navigate. So 45 minutes, 45 minutes, and then we stop, eat, drink every hour and a half. There was a break, and then we carry on. Um, so half of that trip I was following Tarka. And then 
you can think because you're on skis you are following their ski tracks like your skis are plugged in you haven't even got to steer you haven't even got to look you, you just head down you can almost like slump into the sedge harness and just metronomically just just stride you know, just just say so just in your peripheral region like the back of his sledge is just a few meters away do that 45 minutes and your mind can absolutely wander anywhere you want to go because you're in this this really low stimulus environment it's not much going mm. on um so yeah strangely there was much more opportunity for, for for properly deep introspection when there were two of us than there was when i was on my own because i was busy the whole time on my own just trying to operate and survive um, and are there periods and, and i don't want to get too too morbid in this but you know how close you mentioned that, that it feels like it's trying to kill you but like isn't there were there, there genuine moments mm. because i don't know what the obstacles are i mean as you say in in the north pole it's it's potential wildlife i think that's less of an issue in the yeah south pole. yeah north north pole yeah north north pole is, is is polar bears and the the sea ice falling through the ice into the sea which i did on that trip and it's and it's really weird so sea ice because it's the sea and it has salt in it it, it doesn't it's not like a frozen lake where, you know, almost a sort of comedy sketch, you know, crack and you fall splash, you know, it's, it's more like a sort of bog. It, it gets really rubbery yes. and um, with skis on, there's not much sort of ground pressure on the ice. So, so you get pretty good at judging it and you can cross and it's really the shade of gray. Like if it's white, it is safe. Like that's old ice, it's thick snow on top ancients. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, camp on that safe. If it's like slightly darker gray, okay, that's thinner. Like really dark gray with um, something called nihilus, the, the, the salt gets forced out of the, the ice. So you get this sort of frost, looks like frost, but it's actually salt on top of that. Like that's new, that is brand new ice, that's sketchy. But you can cross sketchy stuff on the skis if you're careful. And, and if you get a bit cocky, which I probably did at a few points in that trip. And I, yeah, at one point I, I, I basically went through the ice and, and it was, and it's like slow motion because it's this rubbery skin. You sort of sink through it. You've got all the time to think, oh, bollock. okay, right. What have I got to do now? I've got to remember, don't keep going forwards because it's going to get thinner. In the water, turn around, try and get out the way I came. Okay, how do I practice that? Okay, I've got my ski poles, right. Wrists out of the ski loops slide my hands down to the baskets, use the spikes, use those in the ice, like try and get out. So in some ways that was training and that was programmed and I, I kind of knew what to do and how to look after myself. But um, that was that was sketchy Yeah. Um, looking back. I mean, at the time it's sort of autopilot and it's annoying, but I didn't, it didn't feel like, oh, like near death experience. Um, and, and conversely, I, I lived in London for 20 years. I, I, I firmly believe I had more near-death experiences riding a bicycle in london mm. than i ever have in 20 years of expeditions like there's there's risk there's risk just just being a human being with a pulse there is so many risks to your to your just your existence like every minute of every day um so to me yeah the risks were 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 justifiable and i'd done my best to mitigate them i, I i've spent more time in excel spreadsheets than i have on skis in 20 years um, there's a lot of un, very unsexy groundwork. Well, I was going to drag you back to the kind of everyday after that, but actually the, the last question I want to ask you, and people probably be like, "What a what a bone idle question!" <laughs> is did did you have a did you have a, a preference, North or South Pole? I'm not going to see you there. So, did you have one that you have oh, a better wow. relationship with? And you say, you know, if I could go back one more time to see the old, you know, the old friend. It's it's so hard to pick because in some ways, I think in most people's minds they're so similar. And in some ways, they're, they're, and they are, they're, they're, they're 
top and the bottom pack, coldest places on earth, snow, ice, no one around, uninhabited. Um, in other ways, they're profoundly different. And, and, the, and the, the Arctic Ocean, I think, A, because it's so misunderstood. I, I've met adults with degrees who think the North Pole is a sort of forest clearing in Lapland somewhere. And they're amazed when I say, no, no, no it's, it's an ocean, the Arctic Ocean, and it's bigger than the United States at the top of the world. And actually it's frozen in the winter and it's all melting in the summer and it's all sea ice, isn't it? So, and I walked over the sea for 10 weeks, um, didn't touch land. Um, uh, so the North Pole is misunderstood, I think. And there's a real, in some ways it can be a lot harder than Antarctica. Antarctica on a good day, if it's not windy, sun's out, you can be in your like thermals with the sleeves rolled up, getting it like your biggest worry is sunburn. Mm. Um, it can be Costa del Sol down there on a good day. It can be horrific when it's windy and cold, but it can be wonderful, like joyous, like lying in a tent with in your boxer shorts, like on top of your sleeve bag sunbathing with the door open because it's so hot in the sun if there's no wind. Uh, North Pole, there's a lot of humidity because you're skiing over the sea and, and you're, you're at sea level. Antarctica altitude is very dry. Um, so North Pole, everything gets wet damp and then it freezes you get ice in your sleeping bag it's just grim like you wake up in the morning the tent inside the tent is just covered in frost and then you've got to light the stove and you know that when you do that it's all going to start melting it's all going to start dripping down i literally had a sponge in my sledge so i could like mop up all the water on the sledge and squeeze it out into the snow so it wasn't raining on me when i'm trying to cook my breakfast um as the ice melted. So North Pole is like proper suffer fest in, in a lot of ways. It's misunderstood, but it's it's so unique. Um, it's stunning. And it's also changing really, really fast. Like the old ice, multi-year ice that doesn't melt in summer, there's not much of that left. It's, it's gonna be gone soon. Really um, so there's a real kind of tragedy to this place. Antarctica, I mean, also misunderstood. Um, I think a lot of people, um, uh, would probably most people's understanding of Antarctica would come from the slightly Walt Disney sort of um, uh, frozen planet, you know, March of the Penguins, Life in the Freezer, Dynasties. You know, they'd be forgiven for thinking it's over on with fluffy penguins, which it, it's not. Um, the only penguins are by the sea where it's warmest, you know. And this place is vast, it, it's the size of China and India put together. So the scale of Antarctica is the thing that, that is mind blowing. Um, and I still, I've been there seven times. I still mm. can't get my head around it. Um, I was trying to work this out a few years ago. I, I, how, how much ice is there in Antarctica? How, how much fresh water, glacial ice is locked up down there? 2.6 million gigatons. So what the hell is a gigaton? How, how, do I, how do I understand that, that number? So I thought, well, what if I Google how many human beings are alive right now, roughly? How many billion humans are there? What if I sort of divide the amount of ice by humans? Like how much ice do we have? 100 grams each, a gram each, a, a, you know, a kilo each? What's the, what's the answer? And it's 3 million tons of ice, freshwater glacial ice, in a, for every human being alive on the planet right now. 3 million tons. What the hell is 3 million tons? Somebody, I was on Zoom selling story a few months ago and somebody in the chat said it was x number of aircraft carriers and i can't remember the number but it was multiple aircraft carriers of ice each so it's just the scale of antarctica is 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 um just almost abstract um and it's a place that is ah, just just impossible to put into words really and and breathtaking so it's, it's impossible to pick a favorite i think antarctica taught me the biggest lessons because for me, that was in some ways like the, the zenith of my career 
we Tark and I finished this trip February 2014, finally made it back to the coast of Antarctica. And as as you alluded to, like Captain Scott, still a household name in the UK, Shackleton, they're here. they're the they're the biggest icons in that in that field, certainly for British and, and for many other people. Like Shackleton is huge in America, huge catch even now. Um and very few people seem to realise that the journey that Shackleton had attempted but didn't finish, and then Scott tried and then died on the back, that still hadn't been done. So that hadn't been finished. So that's what we went down there to do, and that's what we did. But yeah, I remember a meeting in the city with a, a potential sponsor, and, and this guy was like, "Well, you know, I, I don't think, I just don't think it fits into our sort of into our into our marketing spend cycle." And Jesus. yeah, but yeah, good luck. Yeah. And um, and and he said, and he said, "Oh, um, my also my my grandmother's going on a cruise to Antarctica next year. Like, do you think you might see her when you when you're down there?" So there's this, there's this misconception that it's all been done, and 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 people even back then, 2012, 2013, when we we're trying to raise money, they're like, "Oh." Um, yeah, didn't 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 Ben Fogel just do that, or James Cracknell, mm-hmm. or, or didn't hasn't Prince, Prince Harry just done the South Pole? So, as a you know, as a wealthy enough tourist, you can fly to these places now. Or certainly South Pole, you can fly into and have a glass of champagne and fly home a day later. So, so there, there was a misconception that it had all been done, and a misconception that 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 expeditions like the one we were planning were were, were stunts. Yeah. You know, first left-handed Irishman on on a pogo stick, <laughs> um, and and. And the reality was like this, this, this iconic journey, like, like Captain Scott, his men, the, the five of them that died on the way back from the pole, they'd covered nearly 1400 miles on foot. No one had come close, like Ralph finds Mike Stroud. So no, sorry, they, they'd covered nearly 1600 miles on foot in Antarctica. Ran finds Mike Stroud in the nineties, they're crossing that, that was 1400, 200 miles shorter than the journey made by Scott. So to me for years, it was as if the, the marathon record or the, the Ironman record had been set in 1912 by you know, dudes smoking pipes and, and wearing woolly sweaters and, you know, and, 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 um, and no one had eclipsed that. No one had raised that bar from, from, a, from a purely athletic human endeavor endurance standpoint. No one had gone further than that. What, why the hell was that? Because they were woefully ill-equipped, yeah. ill-prepared, you know, they didn't have zips on their jackets because zips hadn't been invented yet. They didn't have vacuum flask thermos flask because they hadn't been invented yet so let alone gps um you know s- flexible photovoltaic panels we'd over our tent to, to trickle charge our lithium batteries um for our satellite phone and, and oh oh yeah we, oh of course we can download weather updates and satellite imagery yeah great yeah synthetic materials the, the sledges we dragged were carbon fiber and kevlar the runners are, are Delrin, this like ultra low friction polymer matched to the width of our individual ski tracks to reduce friction. Like all of this technology, how come no one's finished this journey? So that's what we went down there to, to do. And we did. And when we finished that journey, 108 days after we started, I, I, I I'd always imagined that was going to be the most emotional moment of my entire life. That was the the you know the the, the summation of the, the achievement of the of the biggest goal the most audacious goal I'd ever set myself and I'd been working my butt off for fifteen years to get to this point and when we got there when we stepped ashore Tark and I at the same time like took our skis off literally same moment put our boots back onto land Ross Island we yeah, made it longest ever polar journey on foot um first return journey to sample on foot all this stuff finished the journey that defeated Shackleton killed Scott nothing happened. There was no, there was no immediate feeling of, 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 you know, triumph or elation, or it just, just like this sort of vague relief. And then, 
rather than my life like getting better because I'd achieved this goal. And that's the story I'd bought into like my entire adult life up to that point. Like, like the holy grail you know, is yours. You know. Folly, folly of dreams. Like, like kind of aim for the stars. You know, cliche after cliche. And I, and 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 the in my head, like the, the sort of logical next step of that narrative was was okay. Well, when you achieve this goal, life's going to be awesome. And so I'd always seen success as a finish line, as a as a you know physically and metaphorically a threshold in the future. If I could only achieve enough of something accumulate enough of something else work hard enough focus enough one day i'm going to get that i'm going to cross it and everything is going to change like life is going to be made i've made it and i got to that finish line and like not only was it a weirdly devoid of any immediate feeling of accomplishment um but rather my life getting awesome it was shit for a long time like months like physically mentally shattered and suddenly rather than me being on a mission, it was me responding to everyone else's demands, all these commitments I made, sponsors, media, charity, school, speaking, all this sort of stuff I promised to do for other people. Um, and the the goal, the dream, this this mission I've been on for years, this, this thing I wanted to do that was giving me all this determination, all this drive and, and, and work ethic and energy and focus, as soon as we achieved it, it was gone yeah. and there was nothing there to replace it because it, it had been such a big goal it had taken all of my bandwidth all my time all my energy all the money i could find like I swallowed it up well, I know so life right. is, you know there's, there was yeah. a third pole for you to suddenly get on your machine exactly wallets. how do you top that how do you i was in my 30s like, oh where do you go from there oh okay <laughs> so that was fascinating and, and I, i'm not this probably sounds like it's a weirdly demotivational story like oh i i set my sights as high as I could in my, in my bizarrely niche field and we everyone said it was impossible experts said it was impossible couldn't be done walking that far under your own human motive power 69 marathons back to back dragging 200 kilos each at the start it was ludicrous and and yet we, we did it uh, and it was kind of disappointing like where am I going with that well I think for for I think firstly like in business there is no finish line mm. you're not you're not aiming to get to a point where everything stops now, you, you might be aiming for an exit if you're a founder, but that's different to like shutting it all down. Uh, yeah, we, we're, gonna, we're aiming to get to a point where everything shuts down. Like that's not that, but that's what I was doing. I hadn't realized that. And I think secondly, I, I, you know, I, I'd always, up until that journey, I'd always seen, I'd always internally defined success as achieving your goal. And this was the biggest goal I could I could work on uh, to me. And And I think now, I'm no less ambitious, um, no less hardworking, no less driven. But I, 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 looking back, realized that the best bits of all of those expeditions, 12 big expeditions, were never the end of them. Mm. It was always such a, some moment along the way, some moment of, and normally a moment of struggle and striving and tr trying to do something. And, and it's, it's, Again, it's hard to not to descend into cliche, but I, I think now I, I define to myself would define success as, as something like, you know, continuing to strive well, um, continuing to live adventurously. And I, I do not mean I'm going to go bungee jumping next week because I'm not that's not I don't mean that. I, I mean, to be open to new experiences and to be open to taking risks, trying things, learning new stuff. Um, so well, we, yeah, have, we, we have a society <laughs> that's arcing towards the has been arcing towards the individual for you know some 50 60 years as you know you've had stuff like religion mm. taken away and you've had 
other roles that society has placed, as you say, as sort of a dogmatic education and people are being opened up to the idea that, as you say, we remove a masculine archetype of you must be this and people are questioning what mm. drives them. And uh, it always mm. takes me to this kind of Jungian concept of alchemy, which is in the quest for making gold, you know, maybe you hit moments of perfection, right? Which is that you, mm. you're crafting mm. away and, and mm. you probably never get to make gold, but actually in the process of the yeah. framework defined by you, you achieve you exemplify and actually what you won't see and this is not to um i, I don't wouldn't feel comfortable putting you on a pedestal you wouldn't be comfortable sitting on but it, <laughs> you you become what people can see as a yardstick for themselves to drag themselves up to to move forward and that's what we need in society we need we need examples we need action we need lots of these things and I don't know. If, uh, I guess the, the context I'm looking at it through is um, I'm always working with entrepreneurs, and you quite rightfully say, "Look, the exit day." I, I, I remember a, a well-known entrepreneur saying, "It's a very lonely day. You're given a bunch of money. Your team isn't really your team anymore. Your baby's not really your baby anymore. It's it's flown the nest, and your relationship with it stops." Um, and I'd say that through the lens of entrepreneurship, you are always looking to the future. And it'll never complete. Mm, what mm. tech company is going to be big enough? When does Elon Musk get far enough into the solar system? Where does yeah. it all go? It's like, <laughs> and you just draw this big old line from from you know 2021 to the future, and you know mm. that you're not going to be there to see it. So, what what is the framework that makes sense to navigate through that forward? Um, um, I've just finished reading a book called Tribe by Sebastian Junger. Um, really, really, really interesting, and it's a short book. It's an easy read. Uh, he was, um, uh, I mean, extraordinary journalist, writer, war reporter, filmmaker. Um, a lot of time with U.S. troops um, on the front line in Afghanistan. And he talks about I mean, the whole book is about really about human society and, and how we've evolutionarily, we're, we are deeply tribal creatures. We're, we're not really supposed to be living. We're not hardwired to do well in suburbia where we're all disconnected and, and separate, you know, um, fascinating. And he talks about coming back from Afghanistan with US troops multiple times and coming back from battle where he said in battle, their platoon, 30 guys he's with, race, politics, religion, background, all, none of that mattered. They were all, they had this extraordinary bond. Um, they were all trying to do something together. Um, and for each other, they, they were do, doing it. For, they weren't necessarily doing it because of the yeah the, the politics, but they were doing it because they were at war, and it was a, yeah sort of primeval kind of situation. Bit. And he talks about like universally their confusion, and I, in a weird way, I've, I've had this coming back from expeditions, at coming back to a society that is almost at war with itself, is fractured and and, and arguing, and and yeah, you know, and he talks about the sort of. The, the the US you know two party system and, and like conservative and liberal and he said but the problem is the, these these two things can never be reconciled because any healthy you know even even in a tribal sense ca cave dwellers hunter gatherers any functioning society has to have both mm. like you, you can't like the society can't um, can't sustain freeloaders um, because you're hunting and gathering. But equally, we've got to figure out how, how do we deal with the elderly or the injured or the unlucky or the, you know, how do we, so it, any society has got to have both. And yet we're still arguing about which approach is best. Um, so for me, I think these expeditions have given me a, a, a pretty unique kind of perspective mm. to be like for, 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 for many, many weeks of my life, certainly that North Pole trip, 2004, 26 years old, the northernmost person on the planet 
on the in the middle often i was the only person up there 5.4 million square miles everything else is happening south you know and 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 i'm in this sort of like often if it's sort of cloudy you're like skiing to this weird like everything's white and like this is kind of really weird feeling like everything is all the stuff that's all the squabbling and all this, everything's that's all south and i'm right at the top of the world on my own this is oh, this is interesting um and antarctica has this profoundly like to me utopian side to it which is a story that's not told uh, which is that nobody owns it no one owns antarctica it's governed remarkably well by this international treaty compared to anyone else on the planet it is governed so well mm. um it is the largest nature reserve on the planet there's no mining there's no trashing there's never been a war there nobody owns it no one can claim sovereignty and when you arrive in antarctica no one checks your passport because it doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't doesn't matter. Like what 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 flag was flying over the bit of land that you happen to be born on? It doesn't does not matter. And oh, and by the way, you, you've you've arrived somewhere that's quite challenging. Human beings can't really survive here naturally. So you're going to have to work together. You're going to have to figure this stuff out. So it's to me like Antarctica is this like really just totally utopian template of one day maybe human beings can all get on a bit better. Maybe we can all figure out we all share common ancestors like we have less genetic diversity as, as the human race than chimpanzees mm. like there's more diversity in chimpanzees than there is in, in the, the entire human race like we're all yeah ah, like really what are we still arguing about so i think it's given me this 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 bizarre like completely zoomed out perspective so i've been so far removed physically but also sort of in, in a strange uh, you know metaphorically from from society i i think we'll we'll get there when we overcome an obstacle that's currently preoccupying us, which I think we're going through this slightly uneasy globalism phase and it's being threaded by mm. technology, which means you now have these tech companies which have the footprints of continents. You know, they, they are enormous. Yeah. And then there's this yeah. strange relationship between legislation, how they build a relationship with society. And, and as you say at the moment, because mm. it's been commercially driven, as some commercially driven things can be, is the... They seek to mm. further the own ambition of cannibalizing attention, for instance. And so everybody's mm. kind of caught in this like soup. And I think we seriously lack a sort of set of commonly agreed upon objectives. I mean, as you say, at the extremes, mm. the South Pole, the International Space Station, we're able to kind of find mm. these these zones of international collaboration, yeah. which are, are, are truly unique. And I think, you know, through the challenges we're going to face, I mean, hopefully climate change can be that challenge that we all see the importance of mm. stepping up to to meet um, the ambitions of. But it's mm. what, what does your life look like post these challenges? Are, are there more on the horizon? Do you want to lobby for something like climate change? Are, are you? Yeah, I, I, I yeah, I, in some ways, I, I've, I've scratched, uh, you know, sc scratched an itch. I, I've got no desire to strap on my sledge harness and head back there on my own to try and prove anything else. Like I've done everything I want to do in, in that in that sphere. Um, I am, even though I talked about the sort of peculiar feeling of anticlimax, looking back, like deeply content with what I've achieved. And, and somebody asked me a while ago, like, "What's your proudest achievement?" I said, "This this probably sounds like sickening, but I, I would say actually like how happy I feel, mm. my contentment. I, I've never been as happy. I, I sort of thought." Like oh god, in my forties, like, oh everything's going to start getting worse. It's like it's everything's getting better. Great, love it. Um, so uh, yeah, what's the future hold? What's the next adventure? Well, gosh, lots of things. And in some ways, this like practically right now, this weird transition from a, a, an existence that was that was tunnel vision focus, one goal at a time, 
everything else fell by the wayside, you know, uh, didn't matter as much as the pursuit of the goal. And I'm now, in some ways, probably uh, living a more normal, more balanced life. But also, there are loads of goals. And the one of the weirdest paradoxes of my career is, is, is how deliberately spending as much time as I've been able to in the middle of nowhere, like the most disconnected human, oh, no, not not literally, because I've been able to send stuff like one way data, like update website with a little grainy compressed JPEG and a bit of text, but I'm not online, I'm not on social media, I'm not, you know, not reading news headlines for months and months and months, I completely unplugged from that. So um, what's exciting me now is um, the uh, storytelling. And I, for years, I, I stumbled into speaking um as a way to make money out of this i i, I didn't i didn't do my first section thinking oh great i can get the speaking circuit because i i didn't know there was i had no idea mm. people got paid to give talks and and even if i did know that i would have thought it sounded like my worst nightmare i was pretty shy as a teenager i wouldn't have ever have aspired to standing on a stage in the, in the sort of pre-zoom universe um and talking for an hour with no notes like that sounds like my worst nightmare like that i'd rather be back in the Arctic, on the Arctic Ocean. So I, I fell into that world. And, um, and yeah, the sort of weird paradox is now 20 years on, I, I find myself somehow, no, I hate the word network, but I, I seem to know the most extraordinary number of people doing amazing things, like cool people all around the world. And I'm, I'm also lucky that I, I didn't become a you know, a, I don't know, a golfer or a tennis player or a rower. I've got a friend who's a retired Olympic rower and no one in America wants to hear him speak because they've got their own rowers. Whereas I, I've, I've done something so weird. Yeah. It just, it, it's, it, it, no one, it's, it's also like a Trojan horse. No one knows how to benchmark me. They can't be like, oh, Ben's a partner in that firm, but he's not, a, oh, he's a, he's a whatever, he's a managing director, but he's not an equity partner. Really. They can't, they're just they're like uh, explorer, like a just short circuit, these like, deeply embedded human sort of societal benchmarking like no one can figure me out mm. so therefore I, I consistently find myself in groups of people conversations that I have no right to be in a, a bricklayer's son who went to comprehensive he doesn't have a degree and oh I, I oh I'm talking for Sequoia Capital and I'm one of 10 speakers and oh it's sat in Adela's here at Microsoft and no mm. it's General Stanley Crystal and then Elon Musk what the what am I doing here? Wow. So it's it's been, it's been an adventure, like it's been way way more than just the dragging. But, but do you not and, feel like you belong when you're in that company, or do you think they all feel the same? Of like why? Well, why all these I, I yeah, it's fascinating. I, I remember th before that event thinking, oh, okay, this is this is interesting. The, I can't just do my usual like motivational shtick here. Like these, none of these people need motivating. Like like they could have all yeah, Sequoia's whole all of their, their partners, their investment team, the you know, the founders, um, the, the all of their CEOs. Like every, you, you get you got the sort of Sequoia. They've got Basecamp as an adventure theme, but you got the you got the 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 completely predictable goodie bag with the Patagonia gilet and the, and the you know you got you got a badge and 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 the bubble hat and you slept in a slept in a yurt and they had catering and it was glorious um and and everyone's badge was like founder twitter founder dropbox founder strava you know ceo microsoft and and it, elon musk i think it was elon musk that evening talked about the kind of about silicon valley and and and, and the 
the west coast of america and explorers he hadn't heard me speak he came in by helicopter that evening and then disappeared again after the barbecue but um i was like ah actually that's that's interesting he taught all, all, the, all the sort of weirdos gravitated west um and i've obviously i've gone the opposite way like north and south but you you do not meet when you meet people in antarctica they're not normal people you know and and i've had this trojan horse as a speaker you know if, if i for, for 20 years you know if you're invited to speak somewhere if you're flown somewhere and if there's a lunch oh you're going to sit on the top table and you meet the ceo and the head of marketing and, you know so so i've inadvertently been sort of racking up this extraordinary uh, address book and what's exciting me now is firstly doing stuff with that like oh, oh, oh what if i did what if i connect those oh what, maybe we could do this and make this happen and yeah so i am i can't say too much but there are some really really interesting proper business plans like a, a, a big i mean it's not really a startup but it's it's a it's a investment fund that already exists and it's to do with ip and ideas um and and sort of getting them where they need to be and that's fascinating um with with two amazing phenomenal characters in that world who i you know constant imposter syndrome you know every meeting i'm like going home like googling stuff like what were they talking about i'm just you know and um uh and then uh, yeah this going back to storytelling uh i felt like for a long time i felt like a fraud i'm being paid to go and talk to this company what what the hell do i know i've just done these campaign trips really but this is so embarrassing they're paying me so much money to come and do this and then i Somebody made a, you uh, said something a few years ago that the for me, the penny dropped. She said, on a conference call, she said, humans are narrative beings. We're not inspired by data. We're inspired by stories. And I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And then I started thinking, okay, wait, 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 wait. there needs to be, there's data coming around Antarctica right now, reams of climate science data that, that, that if you can get your head around the numbers, is so profoundly alarming, but, no, but nothing's changing. And the stories coming out of Antarctica are the same stories as Captain Scott, is idiots like me dragging sledges. Like, like I think it was Sarah Wheeler, the author said, um, uh, bearded hard men trying to see how dead they can get. Huh. So I, I'm guilty of perpetrating that for many years. But the stories that aren't coming out of Antarctica are the stories of international collaboration, um, of, of this sort of stateless, place with no there's no such thing as sovereignty like it's just a bit of the planet and oh actually we're all on the same planet really um we're all sharing this is home for all of us um so yeah so, so telling different stories about the polar regions and not me telling the stories but young people so 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 taking young storytellers to these places and, and kind of equipping them and, and, and enabling them to, to 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 get their stories out there and it could be film could be writing could be photography could be art music whatever um so that's the broadly that's that's a big part of the plan isn't that amazing though that you can sandbox an environment to stimulate our thinking because mm. again another example of the west coast is the west coast has stood up put a flag in the sand for a a way of being a way of thinking a way of daring to dream particularly mm. with technological change i mean that is one side of change but it amplifies absolutely change yeah uh, yeah, yeah, and it's 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 space is fascinating uh, because we we we've we just seen the, the the contract going to SpaceX. Was it last week? This week? I don't know. A few days ago, uh, to a, 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 a Silicon Valley tech bro is going to build a lunar lander. Like, wow! Like this is yeah. you couldn't write that, you know. Just so um so to me, Antarctica is almost like this little microcosm. It's like okay, right, well, if we're going to get to Mars, 
um, we've got to figure a few things out. And if we're going to survive there, well, Antarctica is pretty good, a pretty good, like literally a pretty good test bed. Yeah. Like if yeah, Antarctica dark six months of the year, 24 hour darkness in winter, minus 80 something, it's like being in space. So, so again, does that make it very dry as well at that point? Extremely dry. Yeah, it's, it's a desert. It has less less precipitation than Africa. It's the driest place on Earth. Yeah. There's a tech company that I'm, I don't know if you've heard of. I mean, I almost feel like inclined to, to put you in touch, but um, have you heard of what three words? <laughs> yes, I, yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. I, funny <laughs> enough, I, I, I uh, gosh, I, I heard about it super early on. And I mean, this is classic. Like you hear this story from so many like VCs, like, oh, I wish I'd got it not not that i even knew how to invest in it yeah. back then but um but i remember slightly dismissing it now oh, that sounds a bit weird and um and yeah genius well so so um, i mean we, we, I, I did the the seed round with chris but i say that because it, mm. i remember this moment where they presented their their technology which is taking gps codes three word addresses but it was 57 mm. trillion three by meters squares and i thought well mm. that's it you know, I, I can't quantify <laughs> that, but that's the world. The world is 50 yeah, trillion. That's the world. That's the world. Squares. And yeah. it made me think about you that, you know, now the world has been wrapped in this sort of theoretical data layer on which we, you know, GPS and everything. And it's like, mm. no, not all the challenges aren't gone, but we've sort of surrounded ourselves in, in, we've taken yeah. away some of that mystery. And, and when mm. I just saw the, the, the drone fly in Mars, and I thought, God, mm. We're getting a little bit of that experimental endeavor sort of kicking off on Mars of can it, yeah. can it rise mm. in the atmosphere? And there's a whole set of new mm. challenges and it's, it's so fascinating. Um, and I can only imagine how interesting some of the conversations you're having now are and will be as you continue to mm. forge that path. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah, having 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 a lot of fun. But I, I think, and maybe this is me being woefully naive and a bit of a hippie deep down, but I, I think yeah, if, you, if you zoom out far enough, we are all we're all inhabiting the same lump of rock, and like right now, we are all doing sixty six thousand miles an hour around the sun. Yeah. Right now, say we're, we're doing sixty six thousand yeah. miles an hour. Like if that isn't a, an adventure, like what is? So yeah, so I, I th- therefore, I I struggle to feel any self pity about lockdown. Mm. Like but life's not really, uh, you know, it's it's life. It's always going to have a hard, you know, good bits and bad bits and tough bits. You got to figure out. But um, I'm yeah, I'm um. I'm excited about the future and, and yeah, well, I, happy. I, um, <laughs> I don't mind if I take up too much of your time. Your time is precious when you can spend it, you know. Yeah, you know, no, I, do, I do have to, do, I have another call in, in, in a bit. So Yes, <laughs> um, but I was going to say, one, thank you so much for your time. And, and when you sort of talk Pleasure. about capturing some of that, um, that, that view, that vantage that Antarctica gave to you, I mean, I guess just even having this interview, mm. I feel like I caught like a tiny bit of that and, um, even just seeing that is I, I, amazing. I, yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, that's been the, the eternal challenge for the last 20 years, like trying to put this, put these experiences into words. Like my, my vocabulary still feels so stunted, like cold, that's not, really, that's not the right word. Big, it's a really big, no, um, fast, no, nah, not really, you know, hard work. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I try to, you know, I, 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 I try to, um, yeah, I don't think my wife gets too much of this, but you know, sometimes I'll I'll just catch much. She'll be like, she'll be like, I'm so tired, and I and I'll I'll remember like day eighty seven in Antarctica of eleven hours a day dragging a sledge, like literally trying to stop myself falling asleep in my sledge harness, just like feeling like this just deep 
exhaustion, like everything hurt, my bones ache, I'm cold, I've lost all my body fat, I've got no insulation, like I'm, I'm, I'm probably dying here very slowly, like keep, keep this up for long enough, it's, it's not, you know, you can't, so I like, tiredness to me now, like, yeah, not really. <laughs> if you're still permitted to have a few of the, the everyday gripes and whinges, I'm sure, if, if they did. Oh yeah, 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 and, 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 yeah. As in that you personally, I, I, not... Um, not what yeah Tarka and i Tarka and i were lying in the tent for probably day 102 or three of that trip very near the finish line and the weather just got really bad one morning we just made our breakfast and cooked up made our hot drinks and filled up the flask and we're starting to get out of the sleeping bag and take which is always the worst bit because you're warm and you're, and you're and you're in your tent you're in this home and then you've got to dismantle it and like get out that's always always hard so and the wind just like really picked up and Tucker was like, should we just wait for a bit? Just wait for the wind to come down. So we had a bit of a lion. We're just chatting in our seat bags for a couple of hours. And, um, and Tucker sort of, he's lying there and sleeping, looking at the ceiling of the tent. And he said, he said, can you imagine having a glass of water, like from a tap? Just to, we, if we were thirsty, we had to like light the stove with a, with a you know, spark and like pump the stove up and then get snow out of the bag with your hand that's really cold and put it in the pot and melt snow and make a hot drink. Yeah. So all this rigmarole. And I was like, oh, yeah. I, I was thinking like, can you imagine walking around outside without like mittens on and a face mask and goggles? Just be able to walk around and not be scared mm. that you're going to lose your fingers or your face or, you know. Um, so we, we were kind of riffing on this and we both kind of made this pact that we were going to be from then on eternally grateful for all the stuff we'd always taken for granted. And we were just gonna be the most contented, like happy people ever, for, for forever. Um, six months later, I was flying from Hong Kong to Dubai with one of my watch sponsor, CEO of the sponsor, flying with me, Emirates, brand new plane. We're sat right at the front, flatbed, feet up on my whatever thread count, you know, sheets and big widescreen thing, frothy cappuccino, and my movie cut out. <laughs> And and I looked over and the guy next to me, his, his screen had gone black as well. And I was annoying, none of the buttons were nothing working. And then they made an announcement. They said, we're really sorry, we've, we've got to, we have to reset the entertainment system and just be a couple of minutes. And for, for, for a few seconds, I was genuinely pissed off. I was like, I, I've lost my place in my movie and, I, and I'm going to have to like hold my finger on like the fast forward thing for a few seconds it's going to take me to and i just suddenly had to remind myself that six months before i'd been wearing the same clothes for nearly four months i'd been eating the same food every single day my only item of cutlery was a spoon we had no crock we'd eat out of a bag with the spoon we hadn't sat, i hadn't sat in a chair for four months my meals would be in my sleeping bag lying on my side propped up on an elbow and we'd swap sides in the tent every night because otherwise you get bed sores on the same elbow i had that on my solo north pole tricks i definitely preferred being on my left side so i can use my right arm to light the stove and do all the stuff and i started getting a bed sore on my elbow because you're always propped up on your elbow so every meal was lying on the side with a spoon like i hadn't sat in a chair i hadn't used a knife and fork for once so yeah so th i think to me like remarkable how adaptable we are human beings um to like really tough conditions like our bodies are incredible things yeah, um that. amazing what we're capable of and i so i sometimes still like look down at my knees and i can't believe how far they've gone yeah. like like you know like four and a half thousand miles dragging a sledge like wow like oh you've done right little knees yeah and um 
and 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 yet also how quickly we take things for granted um you know how quickly we find something else to complain about so uh, and i'm as guilty as that of anyone yeah um any 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 fool can be uncomfortable my car's got a heated steering wheel great love, love that <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, that, that it's, it's been amazing, and I'm going to let you go on to the sort of the perennial gripe, which is whatever Skype call you've got yeah. next, or whatever demand we have, which is another <laughs> thing to complain about. But we shan't. But uh, Ben, th- thank you so much for coming on. I've uh, been absolute pleasure, and um, I hope we get to stay in touch. Ed, it was a, it was a joy, and and I, I yeah, I, I've met some really cool people in a year of relative isolation, and I'm absolutely rank you among them. So I, I yeah, I hope we get to meet up one of these days. And um, as a, as a friend of mine put it, he said if you couldn't if you couldn't hustle in 2020, you probably never had it in you. Yeah. So uh, so you're kind of punchy, but I think there's something there. There's something about like play the cards you're dealt. You're like don't don't complain too much, you know. Um, so. <laughs> yeah, no wise wise words. Um, but thank you again, and yeah. Um, yeah, awesome. It was a joy. Thank you, Ed. If you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations, we'd love to get your feedback. Our Twitter handle is at the Startup Mike, M-I-C, or get us an email, audio or ed, at startupmicrodose.com. If you're feeling particularly generous of spirit, a review on iTunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations. Finally, this recording could not have happened without the support of Founders Factory backed Entail. Their podcasting software and studio in the Daily Mail building, London, are as ever the unassuming stars of our show. Check out entail.co. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.